This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. It's read for us by Mike Vendetti. The story runs 49 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. I'm Mike Vendetti. During the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I'd been passing alone on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country, and at length found myself, as the shades of evening grew on, within view of the melancholy House of Usher. I know not how it was, but with the first glimpse of the building, a sense of insufferable gloom pervaded my spirit. I say insufferable, for the feeling was unrelieved by any of that half-pleasurable because poetic sentiment with which the mind usually receives even the sternest natural images of the desolate or terrible. I looked upon the scene before me, upon the mere house, and the simple landscape features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, on the vacant eye-like windows, upon a few rank sedges, and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees, with an utter depression of soul which I can compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to the after-dream of the reveler upon opium, the bitter lapse into everyday life, the hideous dropping of the veil. There was an iciness, a sinking, a sickening of the heart, an unredeemed dreariness of thought which no goading of the imagination could torture into aught of the sublime. What was it? I paused to think. What was it that so unnerved me in the contemplation of the house of Usher? It was a mystery all insoluble, nor could I grapple with the shadowy fancies that crowded upon me as I pondered was forced to fall back upon the unsatisfactory conclusion that while beyond doubt there are combinations of very simple natural objects which have the power of thus affecting us, still the analysis of this power lies among considerations beyond our depth. It was possible, I reflected, that a mere different arrangement of the particulars of the scene, of the details of the picture, would be sufficient to modify or perhaps to annihilate its capacity for sorrowful impression. And acting upon this idea, I reined my horse to the precipitous brink of a black and lurid tarn that lay in unruffled luster by the dwelling, and gazed down, but with a shudder more thrilling than before, upon the remodeled and inverted images of the gray sedge and the ghastly tree stems, and the vacant and eye-like windows. Nevertheless, in this mansion of gloom, I now propose to myself a sojourn of some weeks. Its proprietor, Roderick Usher, had been one of my boon companions in boyhood, but many years had elapsed since our last meeting. A letter, however, had lately reached me in a distant part of the country, a letter from him which, in its wildly importunate nature, had admitted of no other than a personal reply. The M.S. gave evidence of nervous agitation, the writer spoke of acute bodily illness, of a mental disorder which oppressed him, and of an earnest desire to see me. 
as his best and indeed his only personal friend, with a view of attempting, by the cheerfulness of my society, some alleviation of his malady. It was the manner in which all this and much more was said. It was the apparent heart that went with his request, which allowed me no room for hesitation, and I accordingly obeyed forthwith what I still considered a very singular summons. Although as boys we had been intimate associates, yet I really knew little of my friend. His reserve had been always excessive and habitual. I was aware, however, that his very ancient family had been noted time out of mind for a peculiar sensibility of temperament, displaying itself through long ages in many works of exalted art, and manifested of late in repeated deeds of munificent yet unobtrusive charity, as well as in a passionate devotion to the intricacies perhaps even more than to the orthodox and easily recognizable beauties of musical science. I had learned, too, the very remarkable fact that the stem of the usher race, all time honored as it was, had put forth at no period any enduring branch. In other words, that the entire family lay in the direct line of descent, and had always with very trifling and very temporary variations so lain. It was this deficiency I considered while running over and thought the perfect keeping of the character of the premises with the accredited character of the people, and while speculating upon the possible influence which the one in the long lapse of centuries might have exercised upon the other. It was this deficiency, perhaps, of collateral issue, and the consequent undeviating transmission from sire to son of the patrimony with the name, which had at length so identified the two as to merge the original title of the estate in the quaint and equivocal appellation of the House of Usher, an appellation which seemed to include in the minds of the peasantry who used it both the family and the family mansion. I have said that the sole effect of my somewhat childish experiment, that of looking down within the tarn, had been to deepen the first singular impression. There can be no doubt that the consciousness of the rapid increase of my superstition, for why should I not so term it, served mainly to accelerate the increase itself. Such, I have long known, is the paradoxical law of all sentiments having terror as a basis. And it might have been for this reason only that, when I again uplifted my eyes to the house itself from its image in the pool, there grew in my mind a strange fancy, fancy so ridiculous indeed that I but mention it to show the vivid force of the sensations which oppressed me. I had so worked upon my imagination as really to believe that about the whole mansion and domain there hung an atmosphere peculiar to themselves and their immediate vicinity an atmosphere which had no affinity with the air of heaven, but which had reeked up from the decayed trees and the gray wall and the silent tarn, a pestilent and mystic vapor, dull, sluggish, faintly discernible, and leaden-hued. Shaking off from my spirit what must have been a dream, I scanned more narrowly the real aspect of the building. Its principal feature seemed to be that of an excessive antiquity. The discoloration of ages had been great. Minute fungi overspread the whole exterior, hanging in a fine tangled webwork from the eaves. 
Yet all this was apart from any extraordinary dilapidation. No portion of the masonry had fallen, and there appeared to be a wild inconsistency between its still perfect adaptation of parts and the crumbling condition of the individual stones. In this there was much that reminded me of the spacious totality of old woodwork, which has rotted for long years in some neglected vault with no disturbance from the breadth of the external air. Beyond this indication of extensive decay, however, the fabric gave little token of instability. Perhaps the eye of a scrutinizing observer might have discovered a barely perceptible fissure, which, extending from the roof of the building in front, made its way down the wall in a zigzag direction, until it became lost in the sullen waters of the tarn. Noticing these things, I rode over a short causeway to the house. A servant-in-waiting took my horse, and I entered the gothic archway of the hall. A valet of stealthy step thence conducted me in silence through many dark and intricate passages in my progress to the studio of his master. Much that I encountered on the way contributed. I know not how, to heighten the vague sentiments of which I have already spoken, while the objects around me, while the carvings of the ceilings, the somber tapestries of the walls, the ebon blackness of the floors, and the phantasmagoric armorial trophies, which rattled as I strode, were but matters to which, or to such as which, I had been accustomed from my infancy. While I hesitated not to acknowledge how familiar was all this, I still wondered to find how unfamiliar were the fancies which ordinary images were stirring up. On one of the staircases I met the physician of the family. His countenance, I thought, wore a mingled expression of low cunning and perplexity. He accosted me with trepidation and passed on. The valet now threw open a door and ushered me into the presence of his master. The room in which I found myself was very large and lofty. The windows were long, narrow, and pointed, and at so vast a distance from the black oaken floor as to be altogether inaccessible from within. Feeble gleams of encrimsoned light made their way through the trellised panes and served to render sufficiently distinct the more prominent objects around. The eye, however, struggled in vain to reach the remoter angles of the chamber or the recesses of the vaulted and fretted ceiling. Dark draperies hung upon the walls. The general furniture was profuse, comfortless, antique, and tattered. Many books and musical instruments lay scattered about, but failed to give any vitality to the scene. I felt that I breathed an atmosphere of sorrow, an air of stern, deep, and irredeemable gloom hung over the, and pervaded all. Upon my entrance, Usher arose from a sofa on which he had been lying at full length, and greeted me with a vivacious warmth which had much in it. I at first thought of an overdone cordiality, of the constrained effort of the ennui man of the world. A glance, however, at his countenance convinced me of his perfect sincerity. We sat down, and for some moments, while he spoke not, I gazed upon him with a feeling half of pity, half of awe. Surely a man had never before so terribly altered in so brief a period as had Roderick Usher. It was with difficulty that I could bring myself to admit the identity of the one being before me with the companion of my early boyhood. Yet the character of his face had been at all times remarkable. 
a cadaverousness of complexion, an eye large, liquid, and luminous beyond comparison, lips somewhat thin and very pallid, but of a surprisingly beautiful curve, a nose of a delicate Hebrew model, but with a breadth of nostril unusual in similar formations, a finely molded chin, speaking in its want of prominence, of a want of moral energy, hair of a more than web-like softness and tenuity. These features, with an inordinate expansion above the regions of the temple, made up altogether a countenance not easy to be forgotten. And now, in the mere exaggeration of the prevailing character of these features, and of the expression they were wont to convey, lay so much of change that I doubted to whom I spoke. The now ghastly pallor of the skin, and the now miraculous luster of the eye, above all things, startled and even awed me. The silken hair, too, had been suffered to grow all unheeded, and, as in its wild gossamer texture, it floated rather than fell about the face, I could not, even with effort, connect its arabesque expression with any idea of simple humanity. In the manner of my friend, I was at once struck with an incoherence, an inconsistency, and I soon found this to arise from a series of feeble and futile struggles to overcome a habitual trependency, an excessive nervous agitation. For something of this nature I had indeed been prepared, no less by his letter than by reminiscences of certain boyish traits, and by conclusions deduced from his peculiar physical conformation and temperament. His action was alternately vivacious and sullen. His voice varied rapidly from a tremulous indecision, when the animal spirits seemed utterly in abeyance, to that species of energetic concision, that abrupt, weighty, unhurried and hollow-sounding enunciation, that leaden, self-balanced and perfectly modulated guttural utterance which may be observed in the lost drunkard or the irreclaimable eater of opium during the periods of his most intense excitement. It was thus that he spoke of the object of my visit, of his earnest desire to see me, and of the solace he expected me to afford him. He entered at some length into what he conceived to be the nature of his malady. It was, he said, a constitutional and a family evil, and one for which he despaired to find a remedy. A mere nervous affection, he immediately added, which would undoubtedly soon pass off. It displayed itself in a host of unnatural sensations. Some of these, as he detailed them, interested and bewildered me although perhaps the terms and the general manner of the narration had their weight. He suffered much from a morbid acuteness of the senses. The most insipid food was alone endurable. He could wear only garments of certain texture. The odors of all flowers were oppressive. His eyes were tortured by even a faint light, and there were but peculiar sounds, and these from stringed instruments which did not inspire him with horror. To an anomalous species of terror I found him a burdened slave. I shall perish, said he. I must perish in this deplorable folly. Thus, thus, and not otherwise, shall I be lost. I dread the events of the future, not in themselves, but in their results. I shudder at the thought of any, even the most trivial incident, which may operate upon this intolerable agitation of soul. I have indeed no abhorrence of danger, except in its absolute effect, 
in terror. In this unnerved, in this pitiable condition, I feel that the period will sooner or later arrive when I must abandon life and reason together in some struggle with the grim phantasm, fear. I learn, moreover, at intervals and through broken and equivocal hints, another singular feature of his mental condition. He was enchained by certain superstitious impressions in regard to the dwelling which he tenanted, and whence, for many years, he had never ventured forth in regard to an influence whose superstitious force was conveyed in terms too shadowy here to be restated. An influence which some peculiarities in the mere form and substance of his family mansion had, by dint of long sufferance, he said, obtained over his spirit an effect which the physique of the gray walls and turrets and the dim tarn into which they all looked down had at length brought upon the morale of his existence. He admitted, however, although with hesitation, that much of the peculiar gloom which thus afflicted him could be traced to a more natural and far more palpable origin. To the severe and long-continued illness, indeed, to the evidently approaching dissolution of a tenderly beloved sister, his sole companion for long years, his last and only relative on earth. Her decease he said with a bitterness which I can never forget, would leave him, him, the hopeless and the frail, the last of the ancient race of the ushers. While he spoke, the Lady Madeline, or so she was called, passed slowly through a remote portion of the apartment, and without having noticed my presence, disappeared. I regarded her with an utter astonishment not unmingled with dread and yet I found it impossible to account for such feelings. A sensation of stupor oppressed me as my eyes followed her retreating steps. When a door at length closed upon her, my glance sought instinctively and eagerly the countenance of the brother, but he had buried his face in his hands, and I could only perceive that a far more than ordinary wanness had overspread the emaciated fingers through which trickled many passionate tears. The disease of the Lady Madeline had long baffled the skill of her physicians. A settled apathy, a gradual wasting away of the person, and frequent, although transient, afflictions of a partially cataleptical character were the unusual diagnosis. Hitherto she had steadily borne up against the pressure of her malady, and had not betaken herself finally to bed. But on the closing in of the evening of my arrival at the house, she succumbed, as her brother told me at night with inexpressible agitation, to the prostrating power of the destroyer, and I learned that the glimpse I had obtained of her person would thus probably be the last I should obtain, that the lady, at least while living, would be seen by me no more. For several days ensuing, her name was unmentioned by either Usher or myself and during this period I was busied in earnest endeavors to alleviate the melancholy of my friend. We painted and read together, or I listened as if in a dream to the wild improvisations of his speaking guitar, and thus, as a closer and still closer intimacy admitted me more unreservedly into the recesses of his spirit, the more bitterly did I perceive the futility of all attempts at cheering a mind from which darkness as if an inherent 
positive quality, poured forth upon all objects of the moral and physical universe in one unceasing radiation of gloom. I shall ever bear about me a memory of the many solemn hours I thus spent alone with the master of the house of Usher. Yet I should fail in any attempt to convey an idea of the exact character of the studies or of the occupations in which he involved me or led me the way. An excited and highly distempered ideality threw a sulphurous luster over all. His long, impoverished dirges will ring forever in my ears. Among other things, I hold painfully in mind a certain singular perversion and amplification of the wild air of the last waltz of von Weber from the paintings over which his elaborate fancy brooded, and which grew touch by touch into vagueness, at which I shuddered the more thrillingly because I shuddered knowing not why. From these paintings, vivid as their images now are before me, I would in vain endeavor to educe more than a small portion which should lie within the compass of merely written words. By the utter simplicity, by the nakedness of his designs, he arrested and overawed attention. If ever mortal painted an idea, that mortal was Roderick Usher. For me, at least, in the circumstances then surrounding me, there arose out of the pure abstractions which the hypochondriac contrived to throw upon his canvas an intensity of intolerable awe. No shadow of which felt I ever yet in the contemplation of the certainly glowing, yet too concrete, reveries of Fusilli. One of the phantasmagoric conceptions of my friend, partaking not so rigidly of the spirit of abstraction, may be shadowed forth, although feebly in words. A small picture presented the interior of an immensely long and rectangular vault or tunnel, with low walls, smooth, white, and without interruption or device. Certain accessory points of the design served well to convey the idea that this excavation lay at an exceeding depth below the surface of the earth. No outlet was observed in any portion of its vast extent and no torch or other artificial sources of light was discernible. Yet a flood of intense rays rolled throughout, and bathed the whole in a ghastly and inappropriate splendor. I have just spoken of that morbid condition of the auditory nerve, which rendered all music intolerable to the sufferer, with the exception of certain effects of stringed instruments. It was perhaps the narrow limits to which he thus confined himself upon the guitar which gave birth, in great measure, to the fantastic character of his performance. But the fervid facility of his impromptus could not be so accounted for. They must have been and were, in the notes as well as in the words of his wild fantasies, for he not infrequently accompanied himself with rhymed verbal improvisations result of that intense mental collectedness and concentration to which I have previously alluded as observable only in particular moments of the highest artificial excitement. The words of one of these rhapsodies I have easily remembered. I was perhaps the more forcibly impressed with it as he gave it, because in the under or mystic current of its meaning, I fancied that I perceived, and for the first time, a full consciousness on the part of Usher of the tottering of his lofty reason upon her throne. The verses, which were entitled The Haunted Palace, ran very nearly 
if not accurately, thus. 1. In the greenest of our valleys, by good angels tenanted, once a fair and stately palace, radiant palace, reared its head. In the monarch thought's dominion, it stood there. Never seraph spared opinion over fabric half so fair. 2. Banners yellow, glorious, golden, on its roof did float and flow. This, all this, was in the olden time, long ago. And every gentle air that dallied in that sweet day, along the ramparts plurned and pallid, a winged odor went away. 3. Wanderers in that happy valley, through two luminous windows saw, spirits moving musically to a lute's well-tuned law. Round about a throne were sitting, in a state his glory well-befitting, the ruler of the realm was seen. 4. And with all pearl and ruby glowing was the fair palace door, through which came flowing, 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 and sparkling evermore, a troop of echoes whose sweet duty was but to sing, in voices of surpassing beauty, the wit and wisdom of their king. 5. But evil things in robes of sorrow assailed the monarch's high estate. Ah, let us mourn, for never morrow shall dawn upon his desolate. And round about his throne the glory that blushed and bloomed is but a dim-remembered story of the old time entombed. 6. And travelers now within that valley, through the red-litten windows see vast forms that move fantastically to a discordant melody. While like a rapid ghastly river through the pale door a hideous throng rush out forever and laugh, but smile no more. I well remember that suggestions arising from this ballad led us into a train of thought wherein there became manifest an opinion of ushers, which I mention not so much on account of its novelty, for other men have thought thus, as on account of the pernacity with which he maintained it. This opinion, in its general form, was that of the sentience of all vegetable things. But in this disordered fancy, the idea had assumed a more daring character, and trespassed, under certain conditions, upon the kingdom of inorganization. I lack words to express the full extent or the earnest abandon of his persuasion. The belief, however, was connected, as I have previously hinted, with the gray stones of the home of his forefathers. The conditions of the sentience had been here, he imagined, fulfilled in the method of collection of these stones, in the order of their arrangement as well as in that of the many fungi which overspread them, and of the decayed trees which stood around above all in the long undisturbed endurance of this arrangement and in its reduplication in the still waters of the tarn. It's evidence, the evidence of the sentience, was to be seen, he said, and I here started, as he spoke, in a gradual yet certain condensation of an atmosphere of their own about the waters and the walls. The result was discoverable, he added, in that silent yet importunate and terrible influence which for centuries had molded the destinies of his family, and which made him what I now saw him, what he was. Such opinions need no comment. 
and I will make none. Our books, the books which for years had formed no small portion of the mental existence of the invalid, were, as might be supposed, in strict keeping with this character of phantasm. We poured together over such works as the Vervet et Chartreuse of Gersay, the Belfiogor of Machiavelli, the Heaven and Hell of Swedenborg, the Subterranean Voyage of Nicholas Klim by Holberg, the Chiromancy of Robert Flood, of Jean d'Argenté, and of de la Chambre, the Journey into the Blue Distance of Tyrek, and the City of the Sun of Campanella. One favorite volume was a small octavo edition of the Directorium Inquisitorium by the Dominican Emmerich Didrin. And there were passages in Pomponius Mela about the old African satyrs and Egyptians over which Usher would sit dreaming for hours. His chief delight, however, was found in the perusal of an exceedingly rare and curious book. In Quattro Gothic, the Manual of a Forgotten Church, the Vigia Mortorium, Secundum Torum, Ecclesiae Magnetoni. I could not help thinking of the wild ritual of this work, and of its probable influence upon the hypochondriac, when one evening, having informed me abruptly that the Lady Madeline was no more, he stated his intention of preserving her corpse for a fortnight, previously to its final internment, in one of the numerous vaults within the main walls of the building. The worldly reason, however, assigned for this singular proceeding was one which I did not feel at liberty to dispute. The brother had been led to his resolutions, so he told me, by consideration of the unusual character of the malady of the deceased, of certain obtrusive and eager inquiries on the part of her medical man. Footnote. Body snatching to provide specimens for medical study was a common practice. And of the remote and exposed situation of the burial ground of the family. I will not deny that when I called to mind the sinister countenance of the person whom I met upon the staircase on the day of my arrival at the house, I had no desire to oppose what I regarded as at best but a harmless and by no means an unnatural precaution. At the request of Usher, I personally aided him in the arrangements for the temporary entombment. The body having been encoffined, we too alone bore it to its rest. The vault in which we placed it, and which had been so long unopened that our torches, half smothered in its oppressive atmosphere, gave us little opportunity for investigation, was small, damp, and entirely without means of admission for light. Lying at great depth immediately beneath that portion of the building in which was my own sleeping apartment, it had been used apparently in remote feudal times for the worst purposes of a dungeon-keep, and in later days as a place for deposit for powder or some other highly combustible substance, as a portion of its floor and the whole interior of a long archway through which we reached it were carefully sheathed with copper. The door of massive iron had been also similarly protected. Its immense weight caused an unusually sharp grating sound as it moved upon its hinges. Having deposited our mournful burden upon trestles within this region of horror, we partially turned aside the yet unscrewed lid of the coffin and looked upon the face of the tenant. A striking similitude between the brother and sister now first arrested my attention, and ushered divining, perhaps, my thoughts, murmured out some few words from which I learned that the deceased and himself had been twins, 
and that sympathies of a scarcely intelligible nature had always existed between them. Our glances, however, rested not long upon the dead, for we could not regard her unawed. The disease which had thus entombed the lady in the maturity of youth had left, as usual, in all maladies of a strictly cataleptical character, the mockery of a faint blush upon the bosom and the face, and that suspiciously lingering smile upon the lip which is so terrible in death. We replaced and screwed down the lid, and, having secured the door of iron, made our way with toil into the scarcely less gloomy apartments of the upper portion of the house. And now, some days of bitter grief having elapsed, an observable change came over the features of the mental disorder of my friend. His ordinary manner had vanished. His ordinary occupations were neglected or forgotten. He roamed from chamber to chamber with hurried unequal, and objectless step. The pallor of his countenance had assumed, if possibly, more ghastly hue. But the luminousness of his eye had utterly gone out. The once occasional huskiness of his tone was heard no more, and a tremulous quaver, as if of extreme terror, habitually characterized his utterance. There were times, indeed, when I thought his unceasingly agitated mind was laboring with some oppressive secret, to divulge which he struggled for the necessary courage. At times again I was obliged to resolve all into the mere inexplicable vagaries of madness, for I beheld him gazing upon vacancy for long hours in an attitude of the profoundest attention, as if listening to some imaginary sound was no wonder that his condition terrified, that it infected me. I felt creeping upon me by slow yet certain degrees the wild influences of his own fantastic yet impressive superstitions. It was especially upon retiring to bed late in the night of the seventh or eighth day after the placing of the Lady Madeline within the dungeon that I experienced the full power of such feelings. Sleep came not near my couch. While the hours waned and waned away, I struggled to reason off the nervousness which had dominion over me. I endeavored to believe that much of, not all of what I felt was due to the bewildering influence of the gloomy furniture of the room, of the dark and tattered draperies which, tortured into motion by the breath of a rising tempest, swayed fitfully to and fro upon the walls, and rustled uneasily about the decorations of the bed. But my efforts were fruitless. An irrepressible tremor gradually pervaded my frame, and at length there sat upon my very heart an incubus of utterly causeless alarm. Shaking this off with a gasp and a struggle, I uplifted myself upon the pillows, and peering earnestly within the intense darkness of the chamber, Hearkened I know not why, except that an instinctive spirit prompted me to certain low and indefinite sounds which came through the pauses of the storm at long intervals. I knew not whence. Overpowered by an intense sentiment of horror, unaccountable yet unendurable, I threw on my clothes with haste, for I felt that I should sleep no more during the night and endeavored to arouse myself from the pitiable condition into which I had fallen by pacing rapidly to and fro through the apartment. 
I had taken but a few turns in this manner when a light step on an adjoining staircase arrested my attention. I presently recognized it as that of Usher. In an instant afterward he rapped with a gentle touch at my door and entered bearing a lamp. His countenance was, as usual, cadaverously wan, but moreover there was a species of mad hilarity in his eyes and evidently restrained hysteria in his whole demeanor. His air appalled me, but anything was preferable to the solitude which I had so long endured, and I even welcomed his presence as a relief. "'And you have not seen it?' he said abruptly, after having stared about him for some moments in silence. "'You have not seen it. But stay, you shall.' Thus speaking, and having carefully shaded his lamp, he hurried to one of the casements and threw it freely open to the storm. The impetuous fury of the entering gusts nearly lifted us from our feet. It was indeed a temptuous yet sternly beautiful night, and one wildly singular in its terror and its beauty. A whirlwind had apparently collected its force in our vicinity, for there were frequent and violent alterations in the direction of the wind, and the exceeding density of the clouds, which hung so low as to press upon the turrets of the house, did not prevent our perceiving the lifelike velocity with which they flew, careening from all points against each other without passing away into the distance. I say that even their exceeding density did not prevent our perceiving this, yet we had no glimpse of the moon or stars, nor was there any flashing forth of the lightning. But the undersurfaces of the huge masses of agitated vapor as well as all terrestrial objects immediately around us were glowing in the unnatural light of a faintly luminous and distinctly visible gaseous exhalation which hung about and enshrouded the mansion. "'You must not, you shall not behold this,' said I, shuddering to Usher, as I led him with a gentle violence from the window to a seat. "'These appearances which bewilder you are merely electrical phenomena, not uncommon.' or it may be that they have their ghastly origin in the rank miasma of the tarn. Let us close this casement. The air is chilling and dangerous to your frame. Here is one of your favorite romances. I will read, and you shall listen. And so we will pass away this terrible night together. The antique volume which I had taken up was The Mad Triest of Sir Lancelot Canning, but I had called it a favorite of Usher's more in sad jest than in earnest. For in truth there is little in its uncouth and unimaginative prolixity which could have had interest for the lofty and spiritual ideality of my friend. It was, however, the only book immediately at hand, and I indulged a vague hope that the excitement which now agitated the hypochondriac might find relief, for the history of mental disorder is full of similar anomalies, even in the extremeness of the folly which I should read. Could I have judged, indeed, by the wild, overstrained air of vivacity with which he hearkened, or apparently hearkened, to the words of the tale, I might well have congratulated myself upon the success of my design. I had arrived at that well-known portion of the story where Ethelred, the hero of the tryst, having sought in vain for peaceable admission into the dwelling of the hermit, proceeds to make good an entrance by force. Here it will be remembered the words of the narrative run thus. And Ethelred was by nature of a doughty art, 
and who was now mighty withal. On account of the powerfulness of the wine which he had drunken, waited no longer to hold parley with the hermit, who in sooth was of an obstinate and maliceful turn. But feeling the rain upon his shoulders, and fearing the rising of the tempest, uplifted his mace outright, and with blows made quickly room in the plankings of the door for his gauntleted hand. And now pulling therewith sturdily, he so cracked and ripped and tore all asunder that the noise of the dry and hollow-sounding wood alarmed and reverberated throughout the forest. At the termination of this sentence I started, and for a moment paused, for it appeared to me, although I at once concluded that my excited fancy had deceived me, that from some very remote portion of the mansion there came indistinctly to my ears what might have been, in its exact similarity of character, the echo, but a stifled and dull one, certainly, of the very cracking and ripping sound which Sir Lancelot had so particularly described. It was beyond doubt the coincidence alone which had arrested my attention, for amid the rattling of the sashes of the casements and the ordinary commingled noises of the still-increasing storm, the sound in itself had nothing, surely, which should have interested or disturbed me. I continued the story. But the good champion, Ethelred, now entering within the door, was soon engaged and amazed to perceive no signal of the maliceful hermit, but in the stead thereof a dragon of a scaly and prodigious demeanor, and of a fiery tongue, which Satan guard before a palace of gold with a floor of silver, and upon the wall there hung a shield of shining brass with this legend inwritten. Who entereth herein a conquer hath been. Who slayeth the dragon the shield, he shall win. And Ethelred uplifted his mace and struck upon the head of the dragon, which fell before him, and gave up his pesty breath with a shriek so horrid and harsh, and withal so piercing that Ethelred had feigned to close his ears with his hands against the dreadful noise of it. The like whereof, was never before heard. Here again I paused abruptly, and now with a feeling of wild amazement, for there could be no doubt whatever that in this instance I did actually hear, although from what direction it proceeded I found it impossible to say, a low and apparently distant but harsh, protracted, and most unusual screaming or grating sound the exact counterpart of what my fancy had already conjured up for the dragon's unnatural shriek as described by the romancer. Oppressed as I certainly was upon the occurrence of this second and most extraordinary coincidence, by a thousand conflicting sensations in which wonder and extreme terror were predominant, I still retained sufficient presence of mind to avoid exciting by any observation the sensitive nervousness of my companion. I was by no means certain that he had noticed the sounds in question, although assuredly a strange alteration had during the last few minutes taken place in his demeanor. From a position fronting my own, he had gradually brought round his chair so as to sit with his face to the door of the chamber, and thus I could but partially perceive his features, although I saw that his lips trembled as if he were murmuring inaudibly. 
His head had dropped upon his breast, yet I knew that he was not asleep in the wide and rigid opening of the eye as I caught a glance of it in profile. The motion of his body, too, was at variance with this idea, for he rocked from side to side with a gentle yet constant and uniform sway. Having rapidly taken notice of all this, I resumed the narrative of Sir Lancelot, which thus proceeded. And now the champion, having escaped from the terrible fury of the dragon, bethinking himself of the brazen shield and of the breaking up of the enchantment which was upon it, removed the carcass from out of the way before him, and approached valorously over the silver pavement of the castle to where the shield was upon the wall, which in sooth tarried not for his full coming, but fell down at his feet upon the silver floor with a mighty great and terrible ringing sound. No sooner had these syllables passed my lips than as if a shield of brass had indeed at the moment fallen heavily upon the floor of silver, I became aware of a distinct hollow metallic and clangorous yet apparently muffled reverberation. Completely unnerved, I leaped to my feet, but the measured rocking movement of Usher was undisturbed. I rushed to the chair in which he sat. His eyes were bent fixedly before him, and throughout his whole countenance there reigned a stony rigidity. But as I placed my hand upon his shoulder, there came a strong shudder over his whole person. A sickly smile quivered about his lips, and I saw that he spoke in a low, hurried, and gibbering murmur, as if unconscious of my presence. Bending closely over him, I at length drank in the hideous import of his words. Nerd, hear it? Yes, I hear it, and have heard it long, 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 many minutes, many hours, many days have I heard it. Yet I dare not. Oh, pity me, miserable wretch that I am. I dare not. I dare not speak. We have put her living in the tomb. Said I not that my senses were acute? I now tell you that I heard her first feeble movements in the hollow coffin. I heard them many, many days ago. Yet I dared not, I dared not speak. And now tonight, Ethelred, ha, <laughs> ha, the breaking of the hermit's door, and the death cry of the dragon, and the clangor of the shield, say, rather the rending of her coffin, and the grating of the iron hinges of her prison, and her struggles within the coppered archway of the vault. Oh, whither shall I fly? Will she not be here anon? Is she not hurrying to upbraid me for my haste? Have I not heard her footstep on the stair? Do I not distinguish that heavy and horrible beating of her heart? Madman! Here he sprang furiously to his feet and shrieked out his syllables as if in the effort he were giving up his soul. Madman, I tell you that she now stands without the door. As if in the superhuman energy of his utterance there had been found the potency of a spell. The huge antique panels to which the speaker pointed threw slowly back, 
upon the instant their ponderous and ebony jaws. "'Twas the work of the rushing gust, but then without those doors. "'There did stand the lofty and enshrouded figure of the Lady Madeline of Usher. "'There was blood upon her white robes, "'and the evidence of some bitter struggle upon every portion of her emaciated frame.' For a moment she remained trembling and reeling to and fro upon the threshold. Then, with a low moaning cry, fell heavily inward upon the person of her brother, and in her violent and now final death agonies, bore him to the floor a corpse, and a victim to the terrors he had anticipated. From that chamber and from that mansion I fled aghast. The storm was still abroad in all its wrath as I found myself crossing the old causeway. Suddenly there shot along the path a wild light, and I turned to see whence a gleam so unusual could have issued, for the vast house and its shadows were alone behind me. The radiance was that of the full, setting, and blood-red moon, which now shone vividly through that once barely discernible fissure, of which I have before spoken, as extending from the roof of the building in a zigzag direction to the base. While I gazed, this fissure rapidly widened. There came a fierce breath of the whirlwind. The entire orb of the satellite burst at once upon my sight. My brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder. There was a long, tumultuous shouting sound like the voice of a thousand waters, and the deep and dark tarn at my feet closed sullenly and silently over the fragments of the house of Usher. This has been The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. I'm Mike Vendetti. Production copyright 2015 by audiobooks by Mike Vendetti. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Julie from A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. I'm Brian Alexander from brianalexander.org. Hi, I'm Mike Vendetti and uh, MikeVendetti.com, narrator. Yeah, and you're the narrator for the audiobook. Uh, this is your second go-round on the audiobook. You you did your first one for LibriVox. Yeah, I did uh, the first one for LibriVox, and then I did one this one kind of for pay. It's going to be available on Audible.com in about a week. Uh, but uh, I what, what, what do you think about it the second time? Is it... Is it a different story when you're reading it the second time aloud? Yeah, it is, because you uh, understand a little bit more about it. And uh, when I did this story, I went online, and instead of going to your site, I went just on the Internet, and I got uh, a condensed version. It's like getting the Reader's Digest, and uh, this version of it was about... uh, five minutes long. I said, this seems to me that this was, took me longer last time I did it. <laughs> and in fact, it did once I realized what I'd done. But what it did, it gave me a little bit more insight into uh, uh, reading the longer version of it. And uh, it just, you know, with, with reading Poe, I mean, the guy had such a ponderous vocabulary, huge. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as I do the narration, I do from a PDF file, and I highlight the words I can't understand or can't. I'm not sure about. Well, you know, a lot of these. Well, the you, one you mentioned to me, I thought was hilarious. It was proxlity, right? Which, which is exactly like a Poe word, which is like to make things ponderously long and difficult to understand. 
Yeah, yeah, and he that's uh, the, 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 he accused somebody else of doing that. He didn't uh, say that was <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. When he does it, it's not it's not uncool. <laughs> but what's you know what, what's kind of interesting about that though is that uh, the book he referred that to that in was uh, actually a book that uh, uh, he just made up. And, yeah, uh, I, I, there's a bunch of books mentioned in here. I, I've never heard of any of them. Yeah, well, it, I, it's, it's you know in the notes uh, with your uh, uh, PDF file. It says uh, we've never seen this book, but I think uh, he probably made it up himself. So he, yeah, he was, yeah, I mean, he was a hoaxer. He absolutely loved hoaxes and uh, puzzles like that. He uh, and he he even accused people of doing it uh, and criticized them. Um, so he was pretty shameless about it. Uh, I mean, I like to think this is part of his mind that also leads him to invent the mystery short story. Yeah. Yeah, well, he he's got um, he's got a bunch of he's got a bunch of obsessions that sort of flower into uh, a corpse flower, perhaps into uh, into a bunch of uh, other genres. But the list here is incredible. It's Vervet Chartreuse of Grisette, the Belgrafor of Machiavelli. Okay, maybe some of these are real, but it feels like when I was reading this, this is like this is a Lovecraft. This is what Lovecraft does, right? Yeah, he drops yeah. drops fifteen books on you, and then you go, "Oh, this is much more real." Well, it's <laughs> because interesting. He's I mean, done his research. It's, it's well, yeah, I've seen it. You know, and I I went and and, look, and tried to look these things up. You know, and uh, or the pronunciation. Of course, you get the pronunciation of some of these things. But I mean, he was like Lovecraft, making words, and. Uh, Words made by mad men are kind of hard to. Uh, well, I find think a I think a lot of these are real words. It's just they've so dropped off the radar. I mean, uh, the one that I was really interested in, you know, the way I my method of doing this sort of thing is I never come at it from the front and just read the whole thing. I start on the outside and work my way in, right? I I I sort of map the outline of the elephant. And then uh, only at the end do I get to the heart. So the very first thing I did was I, you know, I watched part of one of the movies and I said, okay, I'm, I'm good on this movie. So I, I started reading one of the comics and then I thought, okay, now I'll read the Wikipedia entry. And uh, the first thing that came up on the Wikipedia entry that intrigued me was the poem, which came out before the story did. The poem that's in here. Really? Yeah, is called the Haunted Palace. Um, I've I've read it before. Sounds familiar. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's a Roger Corman movie too. Yeah, that. But oh, or maybe that's why I know it. <laughs> <laughs> With Vincent Price, probably right. Yeah, well, Corman was a Poe fanatic. He made like a dozen Poe movies. Including the the fall of the House of Usher with uh, yep. Vincent Price as well. He actually put but, Poe as a character in some of his other movies too. Oh, did he? Yeah, oh, cool. Yeah. Yes, we're, well, we're we're talking about in the greenest of our valleys by good angels tenanted, once a fair and stately palace, radiant palace reared its head. In the monarch thought's dominion, it stood there. Never seraph spread opinion over fabric half so fair. I'm going to read the whole thing because. Um, I think it's the key to understanding the story in a in a way that none of the other adaptations do. Uh, what I think is happening is actually is that the the poem is is the outline for the story. Uh-huh. Uh, 
so here's the second stanza. Banners yellow, glorious, golden, on its roof did float and flow. This, all this, was in the olden time long ago. And every gentle air that dallied in that sweet day, along the ramparts plumed and pallid, a winged odor went away. Okay, so you you read this, and you think, this is not like the story at all. This is the photonegative, right? Uh, well, I think this is uh, like that. those two first stanzas uh, and the third one. Okay, go, go. Uh, what happens is this is, the, this is the history of the House of Usher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, in the greenest of our valleys by good angels tenanted. So, remember, it's in a beautiful, well, in, the, in this story, it's a disgusting <laughs> land, right? It's, yeah. a, it's got um, dead trees with wh- white trunks, no branches mentioned. It's like New Jersey. <laughs> there's uh beautiful the 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 line that comes up here that i think is really uh good is in the next stanza listen to this wanderers in that happy valley through two luminous windows saw spirits moving musically to the lute's well-tuned law or tuned law and then here's one of those words that if you look it up it doesn't exist but, it does it does uh round about the throne we're sitting profer- Pophyrogene. It means born to the purple. Uh, right. Yeah. It, yeah, it doesn't exist like if you look it up in the dictionary, but it does exist as a sort of a concept in the 19th century, well, no, right? It's, it's, a, uh, it's a word you get in uh, Latin and Greek. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the Byzantine emperors are called pophyrogenitus, um, just you know, meaning literally mm-hmm. born to the purple. And, yeah, it, it's royal, right? Uh, well, specifically, it's imperial and Roman. Right. Uh, so, I mean, the, because porphyry was this terrific shade of purple that you could only get from a couple oh. of towns in the Mediterranean, and the Roman and they laid claim to it, and so they they would start using. You know, this became uh, a, a kind of synecdoche for um, uh, for the Roman emperor, and mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it shows up. It, it's it becomes classic. Mm-hmm. There's a Babylon Five episode uh, about Centauri, which has you know, called the Board of the Purple. Um, so, I mean, what he's done is he's taken the word and he's just, he's tuned it a little bit um, mm-hmm. so that it uh, it rhymes. Mm-hmm. Porphyrogene. Perfect. Well, uh, those two luminous windows are mentioned right in the first page of the story as well. But again, the photonegative uh, because they are a vacant eye signs. Vacant eye-like windows, exactly. Mentioned twice. Yes. Yeah. And uh, in fact, yeah. And upside down. And upside down, inverted, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So but the ghastly tree stems, vacant eye-like windows, and and the the gray sedge, right? Though that parallels what goes on in the poem, where we've got the uh, the golden banners flowing from the head of the house, mm-hmm. right? And this is basically what's going on. Is it's the poem saying, uh, well, in the next stanza it says. And all with pearl and ruby glowing, with that fair palace door, through which came flowing, 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 and sparkling evermore, a troop of echoes whose sweet duty was but to sing, in voices of surpassing beauty, the wit and wisdom of their king. This is the point where... Roderick, this is the story. He's got the banners, yellow, that strange net-like hair that's just like the fungi. Yeah. Building. Except Uh that... 
that used to be those banners are ye- used to be yellow, beautiful, bright yellow. Now they're gray or falling out or something, right? Or well, white. And also, he, he can't hear anything. He's got that peculiar sensitivity to sound. Mm-hmm. So again, right. it's a sort of negative here, where this is the lots of gl- you know, glorious loud music, and he's in the opposite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of like you know, in uh, Poe kind of follows that. Like if you if you go to the Telltale Heart. You know, it's like, you know, his senses become super, mm-hmm. super, uh, super, super sharp, accurate. you know, and yeah. that's what happened. You know, because as, as I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting you as we're going through the poem, but uh, no, no. it's like uh, I was, I, I, I've done some poem, but, uh, you know, this thing just kind of took me to the telltale heart, you know, with that, uh, uh, the beating of her heart. Uh, he's got mm. a line here, it says, uh, uh uh, da, 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 da. Do I distinguish that heavy and horrible beating of her heart? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you know, this is so never like... more. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then you get flowing, 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 like the repeated mm-hmm. lines in uh, the great poem, "The Bells," uh, mm-hmm. which I was just reading this morning. Tentabulation yeah. of the bells. But the the other thing about this that uh, I've been reading American history. Um, because I'm a dork like that. And uh, one of the things that I um, that keeps bugging me, and we still live with this, is we, we've, we're a republic society, and yet we still love aristocracy and royalty. And it's always, we always go back and forth on that. In fact, you know, next, next year we might have a presidential election with, you know, two dynasties competing, right? So I'm looking at this paragraph, and yeah. it's positive. It's it's really warm. I mean, up until this point, these four stanzas are really, here's a great royal imperial palace, and it's gorgeous. And it makes me think of two other posteries. It makes me think of the Mask of the Red Death. Mm-hmm. You have a similar place, but it's a nightmare. It's a dystopia from the beginning. Right. It's a place of arrogant privilege and ultimate horror. And it also makes me think of Hop Frog, one of Poe's only positive ending stories. Um, where uh, you've got, like, like Mask of the Red Death, you've got a, a royal palace um, staffed with jerks, um, and, and it's beautiful. It, you know, it's beautiful, but horrible things happen. If you haven't read the story, I recommend it. Comments. I'm going to. Hop Frog. Hop Frog. Okay. Revenge story. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the ending on that one, but um, I'm going to have to read it. I just wrote Hop Revenge. Wait, Hop Frog. <laughs> yeah. the, the ending Hop. of it will warm the cockles of your heart. <laughs> well, it's one really quick thing that's just an aside. When you said we love the aristocracy, it makes me think of something that John Buchan, if that's how you say his name, the Bakken, I think it's Bakken. Bakken. Yeah. It, well, you would know, I guess he was Canadian, but and I hadn't realized former that, governor general, yeah. right? That as well as being uh, a, a well-known author whose books I love, he was you know so important politically, and he was talking at one point. And he has famous quote that I came across recently, which was saying that the problem with the Americans and the British is they both treat each other as if they were just broken off pieces of themselves, that they just can't make understand how they should be. That fits uh, this story pretty well. Yeah, and it's kind of that thing about the loving the aristocracy. That's the Americans going, well, we love it. You just don't have it quite right. We'll do it like this. And And it makes me think of somebody was talking about the British and how they look, oh, it was Thomas A. Shippey, who I was listening to maybe uh, talk about heroes and legends, where he's saying the British 
or anyway, wherever I got it, they they look at America, living in America, the way we look at them. Oh no, it was. <laughs> I'll tell you because this isn't coming out too soon, is it? But it was no. our special guest on a good story is hard to find. Whose brother guy Consul Magno, oh. the Vatican astronomer. Right. And he was talking about England, and he said, the thing is, is we look at England and go, it's like a fairy tale. We'd love to live there. And he goes, they look at America and say the same thing. It's like a different fairy tale. We'd love to live here. Mm-hmm. And it's that went right along with that quote from John Buchan, Buchan, however you mm-hmm. say his name. Buchan, yeah. And it's that same thing that's reflected here in Poe that you're talking about with the aristocracy, um, good and bad of it. That's funny. Um, living in Canada, we, we have uh, aristocracy. Oh, actually, we don't. We just have the queen. No one's allowed to be... Uh, you, you, there's no knights allowed. There's no lords allowed in Canada. It used to be not the case. Buchan was a lord. Okay. Um, and it used to be that titles were allowed in Canada, but they're not any longer. However, we still do have the queen. and um, So part of my job as a you know, teacher of uh, immigrants to Canada... And uh, students who are desperate to go to the U.S. Ivy League universities um, is to, you know, inform them about the culture and the idioms and all that stuff up here. And so one of the things that I do is I, you know, I get out my wallet and I show them a $20 bill or any coin and say, who's this lady? Right. Teaching vocab, for example, Dominion. Canada's a Dominion. Well, what does what does dominate dominate mean and all that stuff? Right. And it's basically, I explain it this way, that she's the head of state, right? And she's a really nice lady. She owns all of Canada, and she rarely visits. <laughs> she has a lot of other work elsewhere in the world. She's also the Queen of England and the Queen of Australia and kind of she's still the Queen of India. Landlord. Yeah, she absolutely <laughs> is an absentee landlord. She doesn't. It's wonderful because she doesn't charge us rent. I mean, we don't pay for her. We pay for her visits when she comes to visit. Um, but basically all we do is we put our picture up everywhere and, and, uh, we get, we get the best of both worlds. We get all the, the positive attributes of, of having a, you know, an absentee royalty. And we, uh, also get the fact that I I don't think we have as much reverence for, uh, our political leader as you guys do for your political leader. Even, you know, it's uh, when, when it's time of war, you know, people rally around the president, whether they voted for him or not. That's not necessarily the case in Canada. They're perfectly happy to bring down that particular government, <laughs> replace him with another person from the same party or the, the party across the aisle because they're not really in charge, right? The person who's technically in charge is, oh, it's the governor general or the queen right. when she's in town. We we mix reverence with absolute chaos. We you know we we're a pretty yeah. rambunctious country. We, That's right. We love to hate presidents and uh, and then complain about people hating them. You know. That's right. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a super mix. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's not exactly the same. Can I try the next answer? Oh yeah, go for it. But evil things in robes of sorrow assail the monarch's high estate. Ah, let us mourn, for never morrow shall dawn upon him desolate. And round about his home, the glory that blushed and bloomed is but a disremembered story of the old time entombed. Yeah. Hmm. Evil things in robes of sorrow. Uh, This is, to me, totally revealed uh, as, as 
what's going, you know, what's happening? The guy's died, right? This this estate, this castle in the Green Valley, this is a person. The evil things in Robes yep. of Sorrow eventually are flooding out of his mouth in the next stanza. Well, this is kind of the classic. This is the classic story about equating architecture and person. This is a, yeah. This is the one you point to. Yeah, because when you look at it as Roderick, which had not occurred to me, I was looking at it as the family story when I read it before. I think, I think though, that they're completely entwined. And right. You can't just separate Roderick from his sister. Oh, no, no. But, it's, but as that dimension of it, which I hadn't considered until we were going through it right now, so that's the other layer for me. So I'm discovering it. Yay yeah. for you, um, which I appreciate. Um, but the thing is, is I'm looking at it just going – yeah, because it's perfect because he's in robes of sorrow. I was just sitting there thinking about how he's like, oh, I'm really bummed out, man, because my line's <laughs> ending and this and that. And I'm like, well, maybe that answers the question that I had about later in the story where I was going, he, she's, she's uh, coming back, you know? Yeah. And he's like, oh, I heard it. I heard it, man. You didn't hear it, but I heard it days ago. And then he says, I dared not. I dared not speak. We have put her living in the tomb. And I was telling my husband last night, I was like, wait, hold on. Why did he dare not speak? I think when you started hearing it, it's the time to go, whoops, made a mistake. Go on down. Why did you dare not speak? <laughs> oh, I feel like buried alive. It. Gosh, darn it. Oh, yeah. Huh? Well, buried alive. Darn it. Oh, <laughs> I just feel like you could have told your friend, oh, that cataleptic thing. Whoa, you know, um, I was like, why did you dare not speak? And I was like, oh, well, that's the evil things. That's uh, his insanity or whatever yeah, well, I th- taking him over, I guess. Yeah, I th- uh, one of the things that shows up is mentioned in the story, right, is they're twins. Yep. Yeah. But this is this is very interesting. And all the all the different adaptations, I watched the 1961 with the Roger Corman with Vincent Price and I watched uh, 1989 one, which uh, it was one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen because it, it's so eight. It was more eighties than almost anything I've ever seen, but it was also it was like bad and it was also kind of good, but it was really terrible. <laughs> so bad is good. <laughs> Just uh, yeah, basically. Um, but the thing is, is what uh, one of the things they always do in all the adaptations is they can't just tell the story. And I think one of the reasons they can't just tell the story is because there's not very much conflict between the the narrator, who's just basically our viewpoint into this world, and Roderick, right? Roderick is crazy and, you know, suffering maladies and such. But the narrator, what's he there for is just to give comfort and solace to his friend who's ill. Right. right? To me, it makes me think like, uh, your friend's dying. You got to go visit him in, in the hospital, um, and you go there and you bring a book and you read some stories that hopefully you will enjoy. But, but the guy, this is this is hospice care. This is the, yeah, it, this oh, is the yeah. worst hospice story ever. <laughs> <laughs> not not a great uh, hospice. Yeah, yeah. You show up and you go. Well, I got to get you out of here, man. Yeah, yeah the place is falling <laughs> apart. There's fungus growing on the walls. Mm-hmm. Oh, what, what do you think that like? uh, you think that Paul was kind of or not Paul, but Roderick was uh, sort of tormented by his uh, twin sister. It's just uh, kind of yeah. like he leaves her in there, but uh, uh, he was really sorry that he did it. 
Well, yeah. So, so the what what does she represent? Uh, it, like, it, so the way I'm picturing it, right, is as soon as I see those vacant eye-like windows, okay, I see a skull. Right. right? I see a skull in a valley. This is a dead body sticking out of a gray graveyard. The skull is, you know, is a white skull. And then the trees that are described as white trunks, right? Those are the like the ribs sticking out or the, you know, arm bones or whatever. And then they go in. He goes in. And what does he find? He's, he finds what's left of this rotting corpse. And what's left in this rotting corpse is the ghost. And it's not quite dead yet, actually. It's... Right. I mean, that's that's exactly what her problem is too, right? Is Madeline is, is well, you know, it's not like, quite dead yet. It's like dying of old age. You know, you don't die all at once. That's right. right. You, you know, it just you kind of uh, rot away until whatever's there, the last part leaves. I think she is representing like the reason, like you know, rationality. Yeah. Well, She's like wisdom or some uh, rationality. We don't know because she never talks. She just kind of goes through the room without even noticing them, and that's, that's all right. he but sees. He you know? seems to go completely nuts when she dies, and because she keeps coming back and, to life and dying, she goes into these catalepsies. It's like there's a really great story by Guy de Maupassant that uh, we did as a podcast called "Who Knows." Yeah, oh yeah, that is. I love that story. Right, which is about a guy who who sees one night his furniture fleeing from his home and he freaks out and flees from his home as well. <laughs> and then later on he, he finds his, his furniture in a store, um, the police, blah, blah, blah. And eventually, uh, he gets a letter or telegram from his servant saying, Oh, your, your furniture has mysteriously reappeared overnight. Um, <laughs> and that's the end of the story. And well, he, it's, he then goes somewhere nice to live, where he could be by himself. <laughs> like he's saying, would you like to have someone come and visit? No, I'm fine here by myself. That's okay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I love that. You get that title, yeah? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Well, well um, what, what the furniture? I think if if I'm recalling our conversation during the podcast, rightly enough, represents. Is is to the faculties, the different parts of his mind, the furniture of his mind, and when he sees it fleeing, it's his his sensibility fleeing. He becomes insane because yeah. if he sees something that's insane. He becomes insane. I know. And when you're just like the end of the life of Pi, you take all the fun out of it by well, being rational about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but when he is informed at the end of the story that that his furniture is returned, uh, it's by uh, you know a white-robed man saying, "Monsieur, your your furniture is back. You may return to your life." Right? Come home. Yeah, he's acting irrational again. I mean, I don't think it can be completely mapped out. Uh, I don't think this is uh, you know. What what Poe is really about is mood, setting mood up, oh, and putting mood thing, into the right 
pitch, right? So that's um, why he doesn't do a lot of longer stuff. Yeah, and the thing about the rotting corpse that was just so amazing was um, I hadn't put it together as cogently as you described it, but I was just going, oh, man, the thing about the miasma that mm-hmm. surrounds it, he's like, I, I, I know this was a mistake. I, I know I imagined it, but I felt like there was this atmosphere that was a exuded from it and then when his friend mentions that he goes i know i gave a visible start like oh whoa what that's real and then of course when it's glowing during the storm where there's the little tornadoes and things going on i just was like oh it just shows this whole unhealthy atmosphere that's around everything and i hadn't until mike mentioned the dying person you know and i thought oh how hard their breathing can be Mm -hmm. Uh, if you're around somebody in hospice how they need oxygen or whatever um, and and then this all just puts me so much in awe of Poe because reading the story, well, you know, I've always liked Poe, you know, just the way, just reading the story, but I hadn't done anything like a close reading, and I'm not nearly like you guys in terms of being able to really think about it, but I had just been forced by Scott at Good Story to read Everything That Rises Must Converge by Flannery O'Connor, so I'm steeped yes. in craziness. And woods, lots of woods everywhere. Okay, so and I'm like, and those woods mean something, man. I know Never they do. Flannery O'Connor. Every day you need Flannery O'Connor. Just makes sense. Uh, yes, except as Scott said, um, you know, I'm going to finish these stories and then I'm going to curl up in a ball and weep. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> you need a lot of that kind of stuff too. But the thing about these ghastly tree stems, mm-hmm. and then he mentions that the usher stump put forth no enduring branch of the usher right. family. And I was uh-huh. like, oh, man, he is layering in. So then because you have like, you know, the the stump of the tree of Jesse from the Bible. And you were talking, <laughs> Brian, about the, um, you know, the imperial Latin stuff. But you also just have that natural um, c- parallel that he's making between the house as the body, but also as the embodiment of the whole family. And Mm -hmm. I just, my mind was tottering. Very much like Roderick's. I think Uh, think that's the effect. (laughs) Check your basement for a crack. Watch out. (laughs) (laughs) I better warn my husband. Do not screw down the lid of the coffin. Do not. Because the other thing was, she's so feeble. And I'm like, there's no way she can get out of this, man. Do they go back down there? I couldn't remember the end, except it wasn't good, you know, and he had to flee. And then she shows up at the door, and I'm like, wait a minute. Everything's lined with copper. It's a huge iron door. She has to get out of the coffin that's screwed down. Her emaciated form. What's with the copper? What do you think that's about? Uh, I wasn't sure if it was going to be conducting electricity. Um and so we get a kind of little Frankenstein motif of zotzing, you know, the house with electricity and dolting her awake. But one of the things that I just we haven't mentioned this so far is um, she's a monster, as is Roderick, in part because they come from a long family line of incest. And that's yeah, it doesn't say it, but it oh, sure implies oh, it. Oh, go, no, I go didn't back catch to that. that. Well, the passenger. Oh yeah, it, yeah, it's very just, imp- the passenger is just reading. It's this incredibly awkward, beautiful phrasing. Um, mm-hmm. About the uh, family, um, mm-hmm. it, let's say it had put forth no enduring branch. Right. They don't marry outside of the family. That's right. In other words, the entire family lay in the direct, direct line of descent and had always oh. very trifling and very temporary variation. So lame. It was this deficiency I considered 
you know, very careful word choice. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, so you wonder that, you know, Roderick and Madeline don't have antenna at this point, but, um, <laughs> but this, this helps explain why the house is, I mean, it's, if you view this as a story about incest, mm-hmm. then you understand why Roderick freaks out whenever she walks by and, you know, why he might want to bury her alive for the horror of this, but at the same time not want to bury her because he loves her in whatever sense you like. Um, and this is the end of the line. The story is, you know, it may may be the two they, the two of them have not bred, they have not mm-hmm. come, they have not uh, spawned another round of ushers to go on. And then um, that's in, in the nineteen sixty uh, adaptation, they're very good. Vincent Price is very good at making you think something horrible is going on. Um, and the way they do that is is the visitor is not a friend of Roderick's, not a childhood friend. Mm-hmm. He is the suitor of Madeline. Yeah. Yeah. They had met previously in Boston. I, I think the story is not supposed to be set in the in the United States. I think it's supposed to be in the in Europe because it says you know in in the Middle Ages the I, I dungeon think, was used as a. Oh, yeah, good I, point. I, I think of this as being set in the location of Hammer horror films. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some, some more uh, sort of in the mid Atlantic, right? Yeah, it's Atlantic, England, Germany, Bulgaria. You know. Yeah. I think it's, it's yeah. middle Lovecraft, right? Yeah, I mean, isn't that a state? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The more, the more I, I mean, the older I get, the more I keep seeing Lovecraft through Poe. I mean, I know all okay. these other influences on Lovecraft, but um, you know, you, you, Mike, you were you were talking about the vocabulary. I mean, obviously, this is something you know the crazy thing that Lovecraft does with his, you know, um, cyclopean vocabulary. But in the eighteen forties, this was this was wild. This was not what other how other people were writing uh, at the time. This really stood out, and Poe was mm-hmm. really, you know, marking a, a different terrain. And in fact, um, that struck me too because I read my paper copy from the H.P. Lovecraft's Favorite Weird Tales book, which was edited by Douglas A. Anderson, which was, you know, a bunch of the stories that were mentioned in his famous, uh, Lovecraft's Uh famous essay. Uh And um, this one, as I was reading it, just the first time through the book, and then this, of course, accentuated it, I kept going, Oh my gosh, it's like he's dire- his direct descendant, this weird, vague stuff that you can read anything into, these miasmas, the whole, um, the vocabulary, as you're saying, the, um, the idea of the parallels between people and, and places, these, li- the list of books really called it out, I felt like. I felt like he just lifted that whole idea. And then mm. some of these long sentences, that are just crazy complicated, which, Mike, I don't know how you even did this, because I was looking uh, at it going, yeah. man, some of these, <laughs> but this one especially was like, and thus, as a closer and still closer intimacy admitted me more unreservedly into the recesses of his spirit, the more bitterly did I perceive the futility of all attempt at cheering a mind from which darkness, as if an inherent positive quality, poured forth upon all <laughs> objects of the moral and physical universe in one unceasing radiation of gloom. <laughs> oh, whoa. That's like... Yeah, that's, those, those are not easy to do. It's actually, I take care of that in the editing. Not, yeah. Oh, yeah. really? You do it in post. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, you know, actually, you know, I just, it's kind of like it's some, sometimes I have to stop and breathe and, 
you know, these things are, you know, once you get into a sentence like these long sentences he uses, you know, you get you get halfway through and it says, that's not what he's saying, you know, so I have to go back mm-hmm. and uh, re- A lot of commas narrate, in there. Yeah, re-narrate the thing. It just, uh, you know, and it's like, you know, I, I mentioned before, I'm doing a, uh, Walden by uh, David Allen Throw and, uh, you know, he does the same thing. He's got these long, long, long sentences with full of big words. And Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, too, because I read the prologue to The Scarlet Letter when Craftlet was having different people read the book, because otherwise they weren't going to put it in. And I was like, this is one of the best parts of this book. Mm. And um, it was the same thing. It just, these things weren't meant to be read out loud, really. And you just kind of can't breathe anymore. Well, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the, you know, you, you, you look at history and that was what they did at night, where they would read to one another. Right. You know, so these things, a lot of these stories were probably read out loud. Is uh, you know, Poe is supposed to be read out loud. Yeah. When you read it out loud, you feel the the power of it more than if you just read it on the page. Speaking of which, yeah. I wanted to, Julie, you brought up uh, supernatural horror in literature. I mm-hmm. did a search and brought up what Lovecraft had to say about that uh, story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's taught, he has a whole pair, you know, section about Poe. Um, and then uh, he's I, got a whole chapter, essentially. Yeah. So I'm going to just read uh, part of a paragraph here. <laughs> it's, it's Lovecraft, so they're, they're long sentences. <laughs> <laughs> the Mask of the Red Death, Silence of Fable, and uh, a Shadow of Parable are assuredly poems in every sense of the word, save the metrical one, and owe as much of their power to oral cadence as to visual imagery. But it is in the two of the less openly poetic tales, Lygia, and which is all a great story, by the way, uh, and the fall of the House of Usher, especially the latter, that one finds the very summits of art history, whereby Poe takes his place at the head of fictional miniaturists, <laughs> by which he yeah. means or story writers. Uh, simply and straightforwardly in plot, both of these tales owe their supreme magic to the cunning development which appears in the selection and collocation, that's a word that's also in this story, <laughs> of, <laughs> of, of every least incident. Lygia tells of a first wife of lofty and mysterious origin, who after the death return, after death returns through a preternatural force of will to take possession of the body of the second wife. Oh, I have read that. That is a good, good story. Imposing even her physical appearance on the temporary reanimated corpse of her victim <laughs> at the last moment. Another dead woman story. He has so many. Uh, yep, that's that's his main theme. Despite his suspicion of proxlity <laughs> and top heaviness, the narrative reaches its terrific climax with relentless power. And then here's the part he says about Usher. Usher, whose superiority in detail and proportion is very marked, hints shudderingly of obscure life in inorganic things. And that's something we haven't mentioned too much, but I think is very interesting. And displays an abnormally linked trinity of entities at the end of a long and isolated family history. A brother, his twin sister, and their incredibly ancient house, all sharing a single soul and meeting one common dissolution at the same moment. Well, that's actually, I mean, so Lovecraft to say that, you know, the key thing is their house, yep. right? That's right. He loves his architecture. He does. And that oh, sharing boy. a single soul, somebody said that they were looking back and they said that was probably the most important piece of commentary on this story that had ever been made. And a lot of people had never picked up on it until he pointed it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you get that from the uh, you know the two windows uh, on the first page mm-hmm. of the story, and then and then the uh, crack. Um, that yeah. Runs. Well, I love this. It, God, That's this is so twins. so delicately written. Yeah. There's this. Uh, how how does he cage this? Um, wait a minute. The the line. He says, "If you're looking for it, you can find the crack." Yeah. How does it? Um, oh, it's perhaps the eye of a scrutinizing observer might have discovered a barely perceptible fissure. So, you know, he is a scrutinizing observer. That's all he's been doing. This whole story is scrutinizing away, right? Mm-hmm. So he just kind of pushes this off. Like, you know, if you happen to be here, if you were looking hard, you might have... He doesn't say he saw this. It's this really weird distancing feature, which I think Lovecraft is right to talk about this as a kind of non-human thing. It's, uh, it's removed from him. But I think it also works because when you said, you know, he's scrutinizing it, because one of the things that just I laughed out loud when I was reading this was when he goes, this was such a horrible sight that I thought, well, this just must be the angle I'm looking at it from. I'm going to go over here and try again and turn around and now I'm going to try again. This can't be awful. I'll look at it upside down. Oh, my yeah. God, it's worse. <laughs> oh, no. Now it's really gripping me. And so it's as if. He's so fascinated by the horrible sight that he can't, he keeps looking and looking and looking because he cannot believe what he's seeing. And that's why he's scrutinizing it so much, I think, because he's trying to make sense of it. And that's carried on when he's inside the hall, which I thought was a nice touch when he's like, well, I'm walking by the tapestries and the armor. These are all very normal things that I'm used to. And I thought, oh, that's beautifully done because it points out that he is of that same uh, class himself. He doesn't yes. really say a lot about it. He's like, oh, well, I'm used to all this. And so you're thinking, well, it's not because he's not, he's out of his element. This is what he's used to. But he's like, but still, it was all really too strange. I could not figure it out. And so you get that focus of, yeah, it distances, but it also is what Jesse was saying is this is us going, why is this so odd? It shouldn't be this weird. I know. It's, I know. it's all atmosphere. Oh, it's a great yeah. point about the class status, which is embedded in the middle of that sentence, just kind of dropped away, and we mm-hmm. don't get a lot of information about this guy. I mean, he's our he's our eyeball for the story, but um, we do, we don't get that much information about him. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. One thing that's about, about context for the story is that in the middle of the 19th century, there's a spate of short stories that are, I think of them as science stories, where they're about people experimenting with um, an experience and describing what it's like. And there's a lot of stories by other people, uh, some anonymous, that are either buried alive stories or torture stories or science stories. And they just break down in scientific style what it's like to experience this. And you see this in other post stories, you know, like Pit and the Pendulum, you know, which has this crazy plot in the opening paragraph and last paragraph. And then that's it. In the middle of it, it's just, what is it like to be sitting Sense here? Sense experience, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not really. So yeah. that, like, Rappuccini's daughter would be considered that way, too, then? Kind of, kind of. Because that's, that's a, a classic. Yeah, what if, what if we breed a, uh, you know... Um, Completely uh, opposite, be- poisonous um, environment yeah. so he's raised that way. See, again, I'm thinking New Jersey, right? But, um, but this is... <laughs> but, yeah, but, but that's, that's a classic... Cla- you're absolutely right, Julia. That's that was in Italy. Example. 19, yeah, but it's, it's Hawthorne. He's thinking of it, you know. Uh, oh, but, no. But, but, uh, yeah. but it's, it's, it's a classic example of 19th century science fiction, trying to imagine, all right, if we invent this, what would it be like? Um, but here is, it's, it's, this, it's this sense of, um, 
trying to drill down into it. What is it like to experience that? Man, I'm going to have to read more specifically Poe's short stories. I was already thinking that about Hawthorne short stories, which when you read them, you're like, oh, he is not the boring uh, New England guy you thought he was. Right. Oh, He's man. like Poe's precursor, man. He is weird fiction out the wazoo. Oh, I know. In junior high, I had to read um, the novel. You know, I had to read Scarlet Letter. Right. And I was convinced that I never wanted to take an English or literature class ever yeah, well, Why did they do that? Why did they throw <laughs> um, such a slow, long book at a kid? Because it's short. It's not that short. Use a short story. Well, I know. Uh, but, no, I, you know, I was reading Chapter 2 with that with a student, and... And I was translating, you know, like we do a line, then I translate it. And I was like, uh, okay, he's still uh, he's still thinking about... Uh, <laughs> the, the narrator's still thinking about what might have been if things hadn't gone the way they have, uh, and how that how the audience, or how the group of people watching this lady lift her hand up to her hair feel. <laughs> and that's like for six, six, seven paragraphs, right? I, I think it's because it's a historical novel. And they, they oh. want to, you know, get to the church and sing. And, no, they're yeah. just trying to, they're just trying to shut kids out of literature. Well, because is, it's not the way to do it, right? You start oh, with no. a short story. Well, I wouldn't touch Hawthorne again until, okay, my resolution backfired because in my last couple of years of my PhD in literature, <laughs> I, mm-hmm. ended up, I ended up taking a class in the American Renaissance, and we're reading Hawthorne. I couldn't believe these stories. These are Good demented, right? messed up, twisted stories. Young Goodman Brown? Oh, oh right? Oh, I, I read know. that one and uh, Rappuccini's Daughter for um, my, my own just reading podcast, Forgotten Classics, and I was reading them out loud, and again, this is, goes back to what everybody's saying about it's in the um, verbal reading that you get all this stuff. And I was like, oh, holy moly, what? How come nobody's <laughs> paying attention to this? But, you know, what's funny is my two daughters, I also had the scarring high school experience with the Scarlet Letter. And my two daughters, it, eventually they come across it and they're having to read it. And I'm like, oh, you poor kids. And they're both like, what? We liked it. So they had a teacher. It has to be taught properly. That was opening it up, and he was a good teacher. He was opening it up, and because of that, I went back and reread it. And as an adult, as with Dickens, which was ruined for me when I was a kid, I went, "Oh my gosh!" And even in that story, which is long and slow, there are those supernatural elements. It's almost Mm -hmm. as if he can't help but put them in. You know, there's the meteor shower, and the Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just, you know, I'm like, "Wow, this is wow." He's so good. Oh, no. So I, no. I hijacked it. I'm sorry. I couldn't. Help. I, I wanted to. Um, uh, you guys, I was looking for it. And I found it. It's right at the beginning. Remember, you're talking about sense experience. Um, this is the line. It's right at the beginning, and we're distracted from it by the, you know, the I like trunks and oh no, the vacant I like windows and stuff. But listen to this. This part of this sentence. It's still part of the same sentence. It says. Okay, so he describes the vacant eye-like windows, the rank sedges, the white trunks of decayed trees, and then he says, an utter depression of soul, which I can compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to the after-dream of the reveler upon opium. So what you take opium, you have the after-dream, and then dash the bitter lapse into everyday life. Okay, so you're coming off the opium, right? And the hideous dropping of the veil. It shouldn't, when you're taking opium, it be like you go into a dreamland. But when you're coming off of opium, like you're, you know, oh, crap, I'm back to everyday life. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you drop the veil. 
Yeah, well, so the, the what he's all... saying is, is when you take opium, you see the world as it is. No, no. What the afterward, he's he's saying that when you come off of opium, you drop off the veil. The veil is what opium put on. You're not seeing things the way they were. Well, that's what I would think, but that's not what it says. It says I think it is the hideous it is. dropping of the veil. Dash. It's all dashes, right? So it says, right. I can compare it to no earthly sensation more properly than the after dream, blah, 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 of opium. Oh, Dash, I see what you're saying. The bitter, the bitter lapse into everyday life. Dash. The hideous dropping of the veil. No, I read this. Uh, I read this with Julie. Um, I, I thought that this, the, the opium is is the veil of dreams. That's what uh, I yeah. would think too. But well, it's but the, then, the yeah, after dream. It's the after the dream. Um, right. And you know, and so then that lead that and the dash is not a contradiction or it's an extension. The bitter lapse into everyday life. So the veil is beautiful, you know, like in like in the poem that we're still reading through. Um, right. You know, it's it's a beautiful thing added to it. Um, and we get this is echoed later on in paragraph nine, uh, which I think is a pretty clear shout out to Thomas De Quincey. Um, it may be observed in the yep. lost, the irreclaimable eater of opium during the periods of his most intense excitement. You know, so you got that. That's the dream. That's the mania part. And then falling off. I mean, so it's it's strange because you know that that's that long sentence. You're totally right to, to nail this one. It's it gives you that sense of dream and illusion. It summons that and also breaks it at the same time. So I mean, it's almost as if you go back to the poem that you're reading, that the poem is in a sense the dream of the House of Usher, what it once was, but now we're looking at this you know, reality. Yeah, this yeah. crap heap. You know, that's like. Um, you know, with fungi crawling up it, and the, you know, um, crack. Yeah, this this Jersey Read that city last soul. Read that last stanza. Okay, which I love. I mean, I love all. Oh, the I, I want to hear it out loud. I want to read all of it aloud. And travelers now within that valley, through the red litten windows, see vast forms that move fantastically to a discordant melody. While, like a rapid, ghastly river through the pale door, the hideous throng rush out forever and laugh, but smile no more. That's a neat line. Laugh, but smile no more. Yeah. They're laughing in insane, right? They're insane laughter. You know, and it's kind of like, you know, when you look at the red litten windows, is that the, uh, the sunset reflecting on the windows? Oh, interesting. You know, or is it. That's what I figured, yeah. I thought it was the the eyeballs are gone. <laughs> it's sort of like a red gore, and you see the coffin worms, you know, digging away inside the no, skull, like my... and then out of the mouth are coming like the flies. You've just been the... creeping into the crypt too often, there, Jesse. I know. <laughs> I used to think it was like fire. Roger Corman. I, I I thought when I was reading the story, I was expecting the conqueror worm. The you know yeah. that whole yeah. I thought it was. I thought that, that was this poem and then i'm reading this i'm like this is not the poem no it's well also it's foreshadowing now that i look at it because he's got to race out of there as soon as they they both die like oh i gotta i gotta get out of here right now and he runs he's not gonna smile out forever (laughs) right and he may laugh because i was also thinking there are all the different ways and reasons we laugh the cynical laugh the you know that kind of thing but smiling is indicative of inner joy yeah, or a gentler yeah. spirit, yeah. and he's yeah. never getting that again. No, it's hideous, strong. It's madness. Yeah, 
I was yeah. rereading uh, uh, Usher 2, the Ray Bradbury story, which is one of my favorite mm-hmm. stories in the so universe. Great. And I just, you just reminded me that the last paragraph of it is they, they read the last paragraph of this story, and then they, they run out. They, they run and they fly mm-hmm. off in a helicopter yeah. to the echo of the huh. uh, Russian. Right. Now, they are <laughs> laughing because <laughs> they've won. <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they, you know, like Paul was just fascinated with premature burial. You know, and I did another story you know, by uh, Emil Zola, mm-hmm. The Death of Oliver Vitao. Mm. You know, where he's buried alive, but it has a very, very different ending. I mean, you know, he gets buried alive and gets out and uh, goes back to a new life. There's a, you ah. know, there's a movie that's... The uh, resurrection that's, for him. There's a movie that's mm. set entirely in a coffin with a guy who's been buried alive. Yes. Who would want to watch that? I, I watched it. Uh, I thought it was interesting. I, I, I think it's a little long for a movie. There's a, a weird tale story from the 20s about a guy who gets buried alive, wakes up, and he finds the whole world has just gone downhill, so he goes back to his coffin. <laughs> <laughs> Love. But, the, but for me, one of the things about Poe is that Poe is a hilarious writer. He has an incredible sense of humor all throughout. I mean, he's always punning and japing all the time, and it's one of his love about him. And so his story, The Premature Burial, it's always a surprising story. You think, aha, this is it. All right, we're going to go to this thing. And the first two-thirds of the story are him talking about being buried alive. At the end of the story, you think, ah, I'm buried alive. And he starts, you like, screaming. And then his neighbor is like, shut up, man. You're not buried alive. It's like tangled in his stuff. Oh, I'm of The end. This is great. This is so um, so in, in here, in this story, which is so, so heavy and somber, the comedy for me is the mad tryst of Lancelot Canning. Oh, which is just yes. Like, it's, like, yeah, yeah. it's like slapstick Game of Thrones. You know, this guy, this beefhead is just like, you know, a total moron, you know, breaking things. And then Poe is actually having fun with the language. You know, he has like the dragon has pesty breath. Which is, okay, strictly speaking, true, but it's, it's, a, it's a nice medieval thing. I mean, it's this terrible... And then the comedy of it, the gross comedy that then goes right to the horror. He switches, you know, tone right away into, oh, that banging sound? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's something very different. Well, but the other thing is, the whole reason he picks the book up is it's so horrible outside, and it's so freaking him and his friend out, and so... <laughs> He picks, he's like, oh, here, come in here. I'm just going to read to you. Um, this is just, you know, natural. Here's one of your favorite romances. I'll read to you. And he goes, the antique volume which I had taken up was The Mad Tryst of Sir Lancelot Canning. And you're like, oh, my gosh. And he says, but I had called it a favorite of Usher's more in sad jest than earnest. And then he says, there's nothing in here which he would care about. And he goes, it was the only book I could grab. And I was just hoping <laughs> it would keep his attention. <laughs> But, oh man! <laughs> that was another time I laughed out loud. My husband knew what I was reading. He's like, "Are you still reading that one story? Because you're laughing a lot." <laughs> like I know. You got to imagine the shelf, right? Like what else is on there? There's like uh, incest to user's guide, um, <laughs> yeah, dead families 101. You know how to repair your doomed house. Oh, I'll pick this up. You know. I, well, that's what he was reading, I guess, because the book was at hand. I was like, so, but you were reading it, right? That's why you had it sitting out. So, uh, yeah. 
So is there, do annotated versions, I guess, of Poe's stuff talk about his sense of humor? Or is this something you need to write for us, Brian? Uh, I'd be happy to write about it, but it's... Uh, I haven't seen, a like, a, a one big annotated book. I, I, they must exist. I mean, there's so many Poe collections. Yeah. I, I've seen lots of, like, 19th century ones, but nothing that made me say, oh, God, this is the definitive one. I got to get that. Uh, I used to, I used to collect Poe and I've, but I, I'm down to, I don't know, like 50 volumes. I mean, it's just nothing. <laughs> enough, but if, I, if you want, there's a hilarious, acute Robert Block story called the man who collected Poe. About the oh, old yeah, collector. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cute. But, um, but yeah, there's different ones that have different annotations, you know, and, and these, these stories are in public domain and they, uh, they appear in college textbooks and in high school textbooks, so they often footnote things like, you know, this Machiavelli text and the, the hard word. Right. Um, but I, I just, um, I mean, it's, it, he's such a complex character, Poe is, you know, to have these, uh, wacky moments just, you know, thrust. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, in, a, um, in a, uh, Cask of Amontillado, you know, which is in some days my favorite post story, has mm-hmm. all these sick puns, you know, like, uh, you know, Montressor says, you're not going to die of a cold. Because you, know, you won't. He's going to die being buried alive. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and the wine they drink in that story is called the Grave. Yeah, the grave. Yeah, have some grave wine. Oh, okay, no problem. I mean, it's, it's... This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.